0: Well, it's really good uh, to be with you. It's already been a, a special Sunday. Uh, so thankful for the Equipping Hour. If you have a chance to come to Equipping Hour, uh, Isaiah's working through how to enjoy God's Word, and it's been uh, really, really profitable. And uh, those songs, uh, it's its just great to sing uh, truths like that. I'm bought with the precious blood of Christ. That's, that's amazing. I'm a bought person. Jesus died for me. It's amazing. It's, uh, Incredible. That line: uh, "No guilt in life, no fear in death." Awesome. Imagine being able to say that: "No guilt in life, no fear in death," and we can say that because of the work of Christ. So we are—we're really privileged. It's uh, good to be with you. I don't usually do this, but I want to say a special welcome to those who are listening online or watching online. And I say that this week because I know we have some special visitors from Africa: my wife and my uh, daughter. Uh, I forgot to mention this last week, but uh, one of our daughters has gone to South Africa for the next couple of months to serve there in uh, the baby home and uh, to be part of the church that we were part of when we lived in South Africa. My wife uh, took her and uh, is going to come back this next week, but we miss you, Marta, so much and uh, wish you were here. But I am glad to be with you and uh, glad that we have this chance to look at God's word and so if you'll uh, take your Bible and open with me to Luke chapter 4, uh, we're going to be looking again today at verses 16 through uh, 30. So we were uh, here last week, but that was an introduction, kind of an overview to the whole chapter. And this week we're going to get into the actual passage itself. And, and maybe you can see if you have a, a Bible with headings, if you look down, and, and the headings is the words in bold print at the top of the paragraph and Luke didn't write those Uh, but they're there to help us get an idea of what the story that we're going to read is about and I don't know what yours says but mine says uh, Jesus rejected at Nazareth so uh, someone tried to help us by dividing this chapter up into parts and they said this scene uh, this part is about Jesus being rejected at Nazareth, which is a a pretty good, simple summary, actually. This is about Jesus being evaluated by a group of people and then dismissed as inadequate or unacceptable, which, given what we've seen in our study of the Gospel of Luke so far, is actually a little bit surprising it's not what we would expect because almost everything we've read up to this point has been so positive. If you think back to the first couple of chapters, everyone who has met Jesus has walked away amazed, impressed. So first of all, there's John the Baptist, and he meets Jesus while he's still in the womb, John the Baptist, and jumps for joy. And then there are angels. Angels literally show up when Jesus is born and declare him savior of the world. Fast forward to Jesus at the age of 12, and you see he has the most important religious teachers of his day sitting at his feet, basically, wanting to learn from him. And when it comes time for him to get baptized, God rips open the sky somehow and says, Jesus is his beloved son. And even the devil, when Jesus goes out to the wilderness, acknowledges Jesus is the Son of God. And Luke tells us when Jesus' ministry begins, Luke chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, it begins in the power of the Spirit, and he became quite famous, and people responded by glorifying him, Luke says, if if you look at verse 15, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all, which is a a really heavy word. It's a word the Bible uses primarily to talk about people's response to God, which means when people heard Jesus preach, obviously they knew something unusual was going on, something awesome. They glorified him, which makes it fairly surprising that Luke's first description of what happened at one of Jesus' sermons is a story of Jesus being rejected pretty much before he even finishes the message. And we're asking why. After all this buildup about Jesus in chapters 1 through 3, Luke starts looking at his ministry and tells us first Jesus was a preacher and then gives us a sample sermon, and it's a sermon where Jesus is rejected. And not just rejected, hated actually. And so I want us to look at this sermon and ask why? Why did they reject Jesus? First of all, because Jesus preached a lot of sermons. Even this one right here is almost a year into Jesus's ministry. So this is not right after he got baptized. This is a year later. We know that from John. And Jesus has been preaching a lot. And yet, Luke chooses this one to start off with. We need to look at this sermon, I think, because it provides us a glimpse of what he's going to unpack throughout this gospel. And then, second of all, because it seems strange, actually, their reaction. We're we're used to the story, maybe, but it is strange because Jesus was a good preacher, the world's greatest preacher, in fact, and he's in his hometown this is where he, he grew up. And this is a very religious place as well. And they seemed to respect him because they did ask him to teach. And he picked a text that everyone there would have loved. You remember maybe from last week, verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And then he quotes Isaiah chapter 61, which was a passage that would have almost preached itself. Uh, it's like John 3 and 316 nowadays if I preach on John 316 I can almost just read it and people are going to go home and think it's a good sermon especially like if I read it in a Scottish accent or something and for a Jewish person living in Nazareth this would have been one of their absolute favorites you can almost imagine people saying amen right after Jesus said the word the And they are amazed at first. It seems to go well at first. At least that's one interpretation of verse 22 where where Luke writes, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth and and marveled, amazed. Mark chapter 6 verse 2 tells the same story and he says they were astonished. And yet if that means they were impressed with Jesus, it's pretty obvious that doesn't go very deep. There are questions as well. And as Jesus begins answering those questions, what happens is that their initial excitement turns. It turns very quickly to the point where in verse 28 we read, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. In other words, they're angry. So angry that Luke tells us in verse 28, they drive Jesus out of town, bring him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. In other words, they want to kill him. And, and, and these were people Jesus must have known. It's only like a town of 500 people or something. And they were normal religious people. And so you've got to ask why. What is it that caused these good religious people to become so angry at Jesus that they went from getting up in the morning to go to the synagogue, to worship God and hear from his word, to wanting, as a group, to commit murder? That's the question. There's there's something about Jesus and his message that made these nice, good, religious people mad. And not just them, either. That's the thing. If you fast forward to the end of Luke This is pretty much what happened with Israel as well. So this is like a summary, this passage, a a preview, the cliff notes. They are excited about Jesus for a while, and then they want to kill him. And so I think Luke's giving us an explanation, really, at least a beginning of one, because you remember he's writing to help us be certain. And this is one reason why people were uncertain, and not just uncertain, angry. And so I want us to think, what. Was there about Jesus that made these good religious people so angry? And what does that say about Jesus and what God's doing through him? To answer those questions, we're going to walk through this scene kind of, of slowly, almost in slow motion looking especially at his message, and specifically, I want to draw your attention to four characteristics of the message Jesus preached, each characteristic building on each other, I think, really to like a climax, which is going to give us a glimpse of what nice, religious people hate so much about Jesus. First, the the first characteristic that that stands out when you look at Jesus' message Jesus came proclaiming a message about salvation, and this should be obvious to us, I know, but if you look at the passage Jesus preached in verses 18 and 19, it's clear it's about salvation. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news. Then he says, he's sent me to proclaim liberty and recovering of sight, to to set at liberty, and, and verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And we'll look at those words a little more closely in a minute. But just in general, behind each of those words is the idea of salvation, of rescue, of deliverance, a, a reversal of how things are. The poor are going to get good news. The captives are going to hear about being set free. The blind about receiving sight. The oppressed are going to be given hope. Kind of reminds you of what Mary said earlier when she thought about Jesus in Luke chapter 1. And ultimately what Jesus is talking about is a specific kind of salvation. So this is not just generic good news for the poor or generic liberty for the captives. It's coming from the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah is talking about an end times kind of salvation. And I kind of put a bold print on end times, which I know is a a funny word to some of us. But end times assumes there is an end. That things are not always going to go on as they always have in a big circle with history repeating itself forever. Instead, the Bible says God has a plan. In fact, it's like history is headed in a straight line toward a point where God will break in and rescue his people. The, The day of the Lord when God makes himself, and his salvation clear. And you could call that the end times. And the image Jesus brings up here in this passage to help us understand what it's going to be like for God's people, at least, in in verse 19 he says he's going to proclaim the year of God's favor, which comes from a concept we talked about last week in the Old Testament. Isaiah is using language straight from Leviticus 25, which describes something called the Year of Jubilee, which is this great picture of what God's going to do. Because you remember, originally, the Year of Jubilee was this one year every 50 years where God hit the reset button for Israel and especially for the poor. And so everyone who was in debt or in trouble or enslaved once every 50 years would be set free and their debt erased and things would go back to the way they were before they got themselves in trouble. And Isaiah, the prophet who Jesus is quoting here, picks up on that idea when he is talking about that salvation that God is going to bring and says in Isaiah 61 that it's going to be like the jubilee to end all jubilees because God is not just going to do it for Israel, he's going to do it for the entire universe. So if you read Isaiah 60 through chapter 65 or chapter 66, it's like God is describing, or Isaiah is describing God hitting the reset button For the entire universe and restoring it to the way it was meant to be and you know in picking this passage uh, this concept one super super obvious thing that jesus is is making clear from the beginning is that he didn't just come to share good advice or to debate religion he came to announce good news about what god was doing to rescue his people and to fix what was broken which I know for us at first might not sound that radical or or controversial, but that's only because we're so used to it. Because it's actually like the complete opposite of every other religion that's out there. You place what Jesus is saying here against every other religion, it's so different. Because as someone has said, every other religion offers advice. So you substitute Jesus here with every leader of the major religions out there, and they're coming and offering advice. And what is advice? To see the difference, what is advice? As someone's put it, I think it was maybe Tim Keller, and he was probably quoting Martin Lloyd-Jones, actually, but he says, advice is counsel about something that hasn't happened yet, but you can do something about. So advice is about you and what you can do to fix your situation. But Jesus didn't come to offer more advice. He didn't come saying, let me give you some ideas to help you try to make your life a little bit better. Here's your problem. Here's how you can solve it. No. He came with news. And what is news? Because news is different than advice. That's the point. Again, let me quote. News is a report. It's a report about something that has happened, which you can't do anything about because it's been done for you, all you can do is respond to it. And so you see Jesus here proclaiming liberty. In other words, he's not saying, this is how you can achieve liberty, he's proclaiming liberty. He's proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, captives being set free, blind people being healed. I remember uh, once hearing an illustration, it's not my illustration, but it helped me see the difference between news and advice between how most religious teachers work and Jesus. Imagine a battle taking place. And I'm gonna give you two scenarios, but imagine a battle taking place. And in the first scenario, the battle is won. So you can think about a battle that's been won and the enemies are defeated and the mission is accomplished. And so the commanding officer sends back messengers to wherever he's from with a report about what has happened. They bring back the good news of what has already happened. The other scenario is a little different. It's, a, it's a, maybe a little worse. This time, imagine a battle, but the battle has not been won. And so what does the commanding officer do then? He doesn't send news back, he requests help. He wants resources, he wants military advisors who will come and teach him how to defeat the enemy with new strategies and more effort. And this is what makes the gospel Jesus Jesus preached so extraordinary from the beginning, from the start, because every other religion out there, even the Pharisees really to a certain extent, are acting like military advisors to the people. Saying, if you want to achieve salvation, you you have to fight for your life. And, And here are some resources Here are some ideas. Here is some advice as to how you can fix your problem. Here are some rites. Here are some rituals, some of the laws and regulations that you need to know. But the message Jesus preached was radically different than that because he did not come as a military advisor. He came as a herald. He came as a preacher. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he's anointed me to proclaim good news of what God was going to do. Jesus came talking about a salvation that is going to come from outside of you. A deliverance that's going to be accomplished by someone other than you. That's the the first characteristic of the message Jesus preached. Jesus came proclaiming a message about salvation. Not a way you could save yourself. The way God was acting to provide salvation. That's first. Second, he made clear he was the one who's going to do it. In other words, it was a message about the salvation that God would provide through him. And this is probably a little closer to what would have made him so controversial in the end, at least, because Jesus' message, as we said last week, was very Jesus-centered. He made huge claims for himself. Like here in verse 21, this is an example. He says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing which is the point of Luke, really. Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. It's all about him. And and that was Jesus' kind of standard way of speaking, actually, over and over again, not just here. Whenever Jesus preached, he wouldn't leave any wiggle room where you could listen and say, you know, he's fascinating. I I think he's a good teacher, but he's not all that important. I remember uh, seeing a Muslim billboard a while back advertising Islam somewhere in Pretoria, South Africa, and they were saying they respect Jesus. But you know what Jesus would say to anyone who would say they respect him? He would say, if you don't see me as the point, if you don't see absolutely everything God is doing to accomplish salvation as resting on me and what I've done, then you can take your respect back. Because with Jesus, it's either all or nothing. If he's not the way of salvation. He is not a way of salvation. And that is so important. Let me say it again. Jesus is not a way. He is the way. And that means all other ways are no ways at all. And this is part of what makes his message so controversial, at least nowadays. Because if he would just change the for a. Jesus is a way not the way, then Jesus would seem a little less controversial to many people. But the problem is if we did that, we wouldn't have a message to preach because you do that and Christianity ceases to be Christianity. You deny Christ when you preach Christ as a way and you've taken away the hope, the only hope any of us have because Jesus preached a message about salvation that God would provide through him and him alone. Today, he says... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And what scripture? Today, this scripture. What scripture? We can press on this a little more because Jesus quotes Isaiah. And so it's like he's taking us by the hand to an Old Testament passage. And he's saying, okay, this is what's going on. You need salvation. I've come to provide salvation. I'm going to do this. What kind of salvation? The kind of salvation that Isaiah was describing when he talked about what God would do in, the, in this passage, Isaiah 61, through this person. What person? And to answer that, you kind of have to know the book of Isaiah, which I don't think would have been something controversial about Jesus' message that day back in Nazareth, actually, because they expected him to quote from the Old Testament. They were Jews. This is what they spent their life studying. But is a little more controversial nowadays fact, I've, I've seen, and maybe you have as well, that some people think if you're going to talk about Jesus with people who don't know him, we shouldn't talk much about the Old Testament, because in their minds, it's like the Old Testament is too big an obstacle for understanding Jesus, and they make all kinds of different arguments for that, but you listen to Jesus even here in the first sermon Luke records, and it's clear that you cannot understand Jesus if you don't understand the Old Testament, at least a little, which might sound intimidating at first because the old testament is pretty big but one way luke helps us is by taking us back over and over to a book in the old testament that summarizes the whole story and that's isaiah if you want to understand jesus's message read the old testament and if you want to understand the old testament read isaiah and i don't have time to preach the whole book of isaiah obviously but isaiah means yahweh is salvation And so it's no surprise that the book of Isaiah is about God providing salvation. And you read Isaiah, and you discover he tells a story of how God is going to reverse the curse, basically, which is good news. But the book itself begins with some bad news, because Isaiah, the prophet, is looking at something that has happened in Israel or going to happen in Israel. They're going to be taken into exile, which is a problem, because Israel was supposed to be the means through which God was going to bring salvation to the entire world. And so in the first 39 chapters or so, Isaiah explains why that's happening. They're going to go into exile. God's judging Israel. And then why we know that act of judgment isn't the end of God's plan for us. It's because God made a promise to David about one of his descendants who would come and solve the problems Israel had. And even more than that, solve all the problems in the entire world. And so, of course, as we read Isaiah, we're looking for that king that God promised. And toward the middle of the book of Isaiah... He introduces us to a king named Hezekiah, who's a descendant of David, and who seems pretty amazing at first, but then he fails, and fails spectacularly, and that's ultimately what catapults all of Israel into exile, actually. And so we're wondering, okay, is that the end then? And in chapters 40 to 66, stick with me, the second half of the book, God says no. He makes clear that he's committed to all these promises, and specifically, He is going to fulfill the promises that he made through someone he calls his servant. And he tells a story about how he's going to do it through a series of songs about that servant. But the point here and now is that Jesus is picking a passage in Isaiah that talks about that servant and saying he is the one who fulfills it. In other words, those songs are about me. And the thing is, if you're tracking with Luke, you should have totally anticipated that. Which is one reason why Luke picked this sermon out of all the sermons Jesus preached to begin with. Because you remember, Luke's trying to make an argument. This whole book is an argument. Why you can be certain Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And earlier, as part of that argument, maybe you remember, he talked about John the Baptist. And how John the Baptist said, this is how you'll know who the Messiah is. Because he's the one who's going to do what? He's going to baptize you with the Spirit. And then Jesus himself is baptized, and the Holy Spirit descends on him in a way that everyone can see. And God even uses a quote from Isaiah when he talks about him. And then in chapter 4, Jesus' ministry begins, and he's full of the Holy Spirit, and he's serving in the power of the Spirit. And if you're reading along properly, at that point you're wondering, why is Luke making such a big deal out of that connection between Jesus and the Spirit? which is another reason why you need to know the Old Testament, because in Isaiah we see salvation is coming through the servant. But how are we going to be able to identify the servant? Isaiah tells us. One of the ways is through his relationship with the Spirit. So even the first servant song, Isaiah 42, 1, says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring both justice for the nations bring forth justice for the nations and just so we don't miss that connection the first sermon luke brings up jesus preaching is jesus quoting isaiah and saying the spirit of the lord is upon me he's anointed me and what's jesus doing he's explaining he's explaining what's going on and because we've read luke we know when he anointed him it was back at his baptism And so now we know why that's important. It's because Jesus tells us it's proof that he really is the servant the Old Testament promised. He is the one God was using to accomplish the promised Old Testament salvation. The Bible is a really amazing book. Jesus isn't just an American Jesus. You know, you have to work hard. to to see Jesus for who he is. But if you're willing to work hard to see Jesus for who he is, passages like this one where people are wanting to throw him off a cliff make a lot more sense. Jesus is coming to accomplish the promised Old Testament salvation, and he's doing it. And this is the third characteristic, uh, uh, really, of his message. He, He preached salvation first. Second, he preached salvation through Jesus. And third, he preached salvation through Jesus for, he's doing it for, those who recognize their need. And only for those who recognize their need. And I'm doing a little interpreting now, but we've talked about what Jesus is preaching. He's preaching good news. He's preaching liberty. He's preaching the year of the Lord's favor. He's preaching salvation. But who is he preaching it for? He says, who? Who? The poor. The captives. The blind. The oppressed. And there's a a lot of talk about who those people were. Why would people be interested in who those people were? Why should you be interested in who those people are? As you're having devotions or reading your Bible. That you should be interested in who, the, who those people are because Jesus is defining his ministry. He's saying, This is who my message is for. This is who that salvation is for that I've just been describing. This is who the year of the Lord's favor is for. And this is the sermon that Luke brings up to set forth Jesus' agenda. So you have to ask: who are the poor? Who are the oppressed? Who are the captives? that he's talking about specifically? Is he primarily referring to people's physical condition? Because that's probably, if, you, if you're just reading it for the first time, that's probably who you would think he's talking about, right? Which would be kind of a problem for a lot of you, I would think, I don't see anybody in here who's a captive. Or is it spiritual? Because if you think about the word poor, or each of these words, actually, even blindness, they could all refer to spiritual conditions. So is it a physical problem or a spiritual problem he's talking about? Did he come preaching salvation for spiritual captives or literal captives? How would you answer that question? Where would you go? To answer that question, obviously, where should you start? You should probably go back to the book of Isaiah. Whenever Jesus quotes a passage, you have to go back to that passage. Uh, since that's who Jesus is quoting, you'd have to go back to Isaiah. And again, we don't have time. You already probably feel like I've done a lot of talking about Isaiah. <laughs> but we'll fast forward. Isaiah uses terms like these as a, as a group, poor, captive, blind, oppressed, to describe the condition of Israel in exile. And so in Isaiah chapter 61, it's like Isaiah is looking at a whole group of people who belong to God, and who have been mistreated as a nation and need to be rescued. And he's using these terms to describe them, which wouldn't have been controversial to the people in Jesus' day, because that's how they thought of themselves. Even still, since Rome was ruling over them, and they were being taxed and oppressed, they would have assumed that when Isaiah was talking about the poor, blind captives, he was talking about them. Even Nazareth, you know. Nazareth was this like little Jewish enclave in Galilee of the Gentiles. It was uh, so many Gentiles in Galilee. They, they would have thought of themselves as oppressed. That was kind of like their identity. And, and, and now we're kind of getting to what made Jesus' message controversial. And maybe not so much here, but as he kept preaching, what made Jesus' message controversial was that he made clear they couldn't simply assume that. In other words, one of the reasons Jesus got killed from a human perspective was that he was talking to people who assumed the promises they read in the Old Testament were about them almost automatically. It was like that was their identity. And then Jesus comes in, and not so much here, but as he keeps preaching, he shows that they can't just assume that, which is why in Luke we're going to see, think about the book of Luke, there's all these shocking reversals. Like, there are tax collectors and sinners, and there are religious leaders, and Jesus is eating with the tax collectors and the sinners. And there's this Pharisee and a sinful woman, and Jesus says, it's actually the sinful woman who received me correctly. And there's Levites and priests, the people everyone would have respected, and there's a good Samaritan, ah, Samaritan, and it's the good Samaritan who actually obeyed God's law. And there's a story about a wedding, and, and the friends don't come, but the poor and the crippled and the lame come instead. And there's a shepherd who's finding joy over a lost sheep, and there's a father who's throwing a party for a prodigal son, and one of the most important would be there's a story about a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus, and Lazarus, the poor man, is the one who's with Abraham and exalted, and the rich man is the one who's being punished forever. And there's actually more. It's almost like in every story really. You remember maybe those 10 lepers, and only one comes back, and Luke's like, he's a Samaritan, and he's the one that Jesus says whose faith has made him well. And oh yeah, there's also a story about a tax collector and a Pharisee who go to the temple to pray, and it's the tax collector who comes back justified before God. And I guess we'll get to that as we keep going, but the point is that Luke brings up this first sermon in Nazareth, As part of a whole argument that he's making throughout the book. In other words, in this passage here, Jesus says he's coming to preach salvation to a certain kind of people. And the rest of the book defines those kinds of people. And we see that in Luke, rich, poor are not so much a matter of one's physical condition, but instead about those who respond appropriately to Jesus. And actually, I think the sermon he preached in Matthew might be the best explanation of the response Jesus was looking for, because Matthew 5, how does it start? Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And you keep working through that passage, you know what Jesus is doing in Matthew 5? This is like light bulb. He's expositing, at least that beginning, he's expositing Isaiah 61, the same passage he's preaching here. And he's saying as clear as he can that the kingdom is for those who recognize they're spiritually poor and who see themselves as spiritually bankrupt. And if we come back to Luke, Luke 19.10 is super explicit. Jesus says, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. The lost, that's the poor, that's the captive, that's the oppressed that Jesus is talking about, which is part of what makes him so significant, why we love him, because it means he's providing salvation for the people you wouldn't expect, for those who know they don't deserve it, and yet it's also part of what made Jesus so controversial, because if there is one thing that nice, good, religious people don't like pointed out, It's that they are lost. In fact, there's a story later in Luke where the Pharisees and scribes grumble at Jesus' disciples because he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And they ask, why is he eating with people like that? And that has to do, of course, with their whole view of salvation. We have to clean ourselves up so the Messiah will be ready so we can deserve the Messiah to come. And Jesus hears them and responds, Luke 5, 31, he says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous but sinners. In other words, I did not come to provide a salvation for people who think they're fine and good. I came for people who know they're not. Spiritually poor people people who recognize they're in bondage spiritually, who know they're blind. Which you think you would think that would be super obvious. But isn't. It isn't. I often tell my children that to be saved, you, know, you need to know you need it. Which, again, you would think would be obvious. But isn't. Knowing you need it. Knowing you need it takes a miracle, honestly. I think this is one of the reasons James, he'll, he'll say, if you're a rich believer, boast in your humiliation. Because he's like, it's especially hard for rich people who have everything to know that they need a savior. And so if you're a rich person who is like prosperous, you're going to be so tempted to be proud, so what you need to do is boast, continually boast in the fact that God has done a miracle in your life, and you recognize that you are a lost sinner who needs a Savior. Because that takes a miracle from God, not just to affirm it with your lips, like generally, oh, I'm one of a group of sinners, but to believe it in your heart. We don't, we don't mind, you know, there are things we don't mind people telling us. We don't mind, I don't think, people saying we're victims, We don't mind seeing ourselves as failures, especially if it doesn't come to God's word, but like, I'm just not good at stuff. But actual sinners is something different, and it's part of what made Jesus' message so offensive, because if you think about the rest of the Gospel of Luke, and you can read it, and watch Jesus coming after Israel, and especially the religious leadership, time and time again saying, it's not enough just to have God's word. You need to do it. And in all kinds of creative ways, Jesus makes clear that they weren't and they really couldn't. The parable of the Good Samaritan, that's what it's about. The parable of the prodigal son, what he says to the rich young ruler, it's all you're not as good as you think you are, which is the one message that nice, good religious people don't like. Are you saying I need salvation, not just help? Are you saying I need spiritual salvation? and not just deliverance from my problems that other people are creating? And are you saying that salvation comes from outside of me? I can't earn it. I can't achieve it. Are you saying I'm not good? Once people start feeling you're talking to them like that, they start getting upset, which is what starts happening there in Nazareth with the people who are listening to Jesus. Luke writes, verse 22, and they all spoke well of him at first, and and they marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Which is a little bit funny the way that question sounds here in Luke, but this is one of those places where the actual Greek text could be translated two ways. And the problem is they are basically opposites. So the words translated in our versions, all spoke, actually literally reads, all witnessed him. And the question is, did they witness for him, or did they witness against him? Because the original Greek doesn't have the word for or against in the text. Instead, you have to look at the form of the word witness to figure that out. And in this case, it's in this form that could be either for or against, depending on the context. And so if the person translating thinks the audience liked what Jesus said, then they'll say all spoke well of him. And if they think the audience didn't like what Jesus said, then they'll write all witnessed against him which if you look at Mark, where he tells this story, and you look at the rest of this verse, kind of makes more sense because after reading that they marveled at the words coming out of his mouth, we find them saying, is not this Joseph's son? Which was not intended as a compliment. And, and you know that because Mark, right after that, says they took offense at Jesus. This was an, an insult. And it was an insult because they had a conception. They had an idea of how the Messiah was supposed to accomplish his work, and what the Messiah was supposed to look like. And Jesus didn't look like and Jesus didn't sound like their preconceived idea. Even as he reads this passage, he's not preaching it the way they would have wanted him to because he stops right before the part they loved most, which was about the judgment of the Gentiles. And so they begin looking at Jesus and saying, man, who do you think you are? Is not this Joseph's son? Which is actually what people often do, isn't it, if you think about it? They've got a a way they think God is supposed to work. And when their view of the world or their plan for how things are supposed to work is different than God's, even religious people, actually, people don't, don't mind being religious as long as they're the ones telling God what to do, how it's supposed to work. But when God claims authority, when God exercises authority, when he does something differently than they would, when his plan looks different than theirs, they go on the attack. And so Jesus says to them in verse 23, doubtless you'll quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. Which sounds like a strange proverb to us, I think. But in those days, they didn't think much of doctors. Sorry, doctors in the church. And if you read the history of ancient medicine, you'll definitely understand why. You'll also be thankful you live in the 21st century. Um, And so when a, a doctor would make a suggestion, the people would want some kind of proof that it would work. Like, before you put those leeches on me to suck all my blood out, why don't you try it? And it became kind of a a proverb, before you try it on me, I want to see you try it on yourself, I want to know that it worked, physician heal yourself, which Jesus is using here to say, I know what you're going to say you want from me, you want some signs, almost like, if you're the Messiah, if you have this kind of authority, let's see it, which I don't know, maybe you're reading this for the first time, that doesn't seem like such a bad thing to ask, because here Jesus is coming back into his hometown, and he's making some big claims, and so you can sort of understand why they might want some proof, and you maybe would even wonder why Jesus didn't give it to them. And I think one reason he didn't is because he knows this is actually just an excuse. Here he's coming saying he's providing salvation, he's the fulfillment of Scripture, and they're getting angry and saying they want some science to prove it, and Jesus knows the real reason they weren't listening had nothing to do with a lack of signs or miracles or proof. In fact, you you look at what Jesus says next, and it gives the people away, doesn't it? Because what do we find the people saying? Jesus quotes them. Verse 23, what we've heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well, which means they knew Jesus had done miracles in Capernaum. That wasn't that far. They had all kinds of eyewitness accounts about that. Jesus was famous, which is probably why they even had him preach that day in Nazareth. They knew what Jesus had done. And so this is not an honest, legitimate question they're asking. This is an excuse. This wasn't about proof. This was more like a charge on on Jesus. This was unbelief. Mark tells us that. So they start coming after Jesus. Who do you think you are? You do not look like the kind of Messiah we're waiting for. Isn't this Joseph's son? And so don't start coming in here and speaking with authority and talking about being the fulfillment of Scripture and telling us that you get to define how those Scriptures are fulfilled because we've already got a plan for how we think the Messiah is supposed to work, which was the issue. It's the issue in Luke. They had a plan, and we keep reading Luke, and if you look at their plan, you know what? Their plan looked more like the devil's. In fact, I, I realized this week, you read Luke, and it's kind of like a story of two sons. Because you remember how Israel was a son of God in the Old Testament, and Jesus is the son of God here? And what kind of son was Israel? Israel. I think this might be part of why Luke structures the chapter the way he does. They had basically bought the devil's version. If you think about the temptation of Jesus, just the story before, you remember the devil is giving Jesus his version of sonship and says, you know how it's supposed to work if you're the son of God? Command this stone to become bread. And you remember that was his way of saying, make what you want more important than what God wants, which Jesus rejected, but is actually the kind of son they were, Israel, at that point. As Luke goes on, we keep studying, we're going to see And and again, especially with the religious leadership, but the people followed, that they weren't really as interested in God's authority, God's will, submitting to God's authority, as they were in using religion to exercise their own authority. And Jesus knew that. Even here, he sees behind their excuses, and what he sees is unbelief. That's why they were minimizing and dismissing him. It wasn't a lack of signs, which is why he says in verse 24, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown which is kind of crazy, actually, that's the thing. I mean, we quote that as if it made sense. But that saying only makes sense because people are so messed up. People are so messed up that they can come up with the craziest kind of excuse to reject Jesus, because think about this, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. That is a crazy reason for rejecting Jesus. Because of all the people in the whole world who had the most proof who Jesus was, it would have been the people there in Nazareth. I mean, this was a small town. They had almost 30 years with him. And Jesus was clearly unusual. He didn't have a halo on his head or anything, but he never sinned. That's got to be obvious after a while. And there were all kinds of things that happened around his birth, and there's no way Mary stayed quiet about that all those years. She was telling people, I guarantee you. And if that's not enough, at 12, Jesus had gone down to the temple, the most important place in their entire nation, had impressed the most educated teachers they had in the entire country. So you've got to believe they could see there was something unusual about him back there in that rural town of Nazareth. But Even with all that proof, they still rejected his message, basically using the very thing that should have made them accept his message more quickly. They they knew him. They knew what he was like. They had every reason to listen to what he said, but they were using the very thing that should have made them accept his message more quickly as an excuse for rejecting him, saying, isn't this Joseph's son? And guys, they knew he wasn't. They all knew he wasn't. That's not the problem. That's just an excuse. And so Jesus goes on and he tells them something shocking, absolutely shocking, which is really important for understanding how we're even here today and for understanding how the rest of the story goes. And, And we're getting to it. Jesus came preaching a message about salvation, first. Second, that God would provide through Jesus in fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. Third, for those who knew they needed it, not just physically but spiritually. And fourth, he was going to provide that salvation for anyone who came to him, trusting his word. And you might want to underline that word, anyone, because that's what made the people in Nazareth explode. And it made them explode because from their perspective, when the Messiah came, he was just going to affirm them and judge the Gentiles. That's how it was supposed to work no questions asked. And the whole gospel of Luke is going to show, no, that's not actually how it's going to work. What God wants is faith. What God wants is a son like Jesus, who's going to exercise faith, who's going to submit to his will and submit to to Jesus as God's beloved son. Faith comes first which is what Jesus proved back as he was being tested by the devil. That's the kind of son he was who trusted his father and what his father wanted. And it's like Jesus is saying here that if Israel at that time in his day was not willing to be that kind of son, if they look at Jesus and they stumble because they're not willing to submit to his authority, we need to understand that doesn't say anything about Jesus. The problem's not Jesus. It's their lack of faith. And yet, here's kind of the surprise of the gospel their lack of faith is not going to stop God from accomplishing his plan because God is going to use the work of Jesus to provide salvation for those who will believe and to prove that Jesus tells two stories from the Old Testament and the first is in verse 25 he says but in truth I I tell you there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months And a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And that story was really shocking. Uh, Just that Jesus said that like that is so shocking. Uh, When we lived in South Africa, I don't know if you know the history of South Africa. I probably don't need to tell this story, but there were uh, there's Afrikaans, there's apartheid, there's all that. And so there are Afrikaans people who maybe would go start their own town because they just wanted to be with Afrikaans people even now and uh, wanting to get away from everyone else. And that would be like, kind of like Nazareth. And uh, imagine someone coming into that town and saying, you know who's, who, who's really right with God? And using an old Zulu guy as an example. That's kind of what Jesus is doing here in Nazareth as he talks about the Gentiles as an example of of true faith. Because this story is about a widow in 1 Kings 17 during the time when Israel was in serious decline spiritually. They were basically given over to the worship of Baal. And so Elijah denounces Ahab. He predicts a famine, which was a judgment because they hadn't kept the covenant. And as the famine starts getting really bad, God sends Elijah to a place. Called Sidon, a town in a place called Sidon, which was not part of Israel and was Jezebel's hometown, actually. And uh, Jezebel, even if you don't know the story in Kings Jezebel, we know that's a bad name, right? So that's like a, a bad place. And when Elijah got there, he found a widow who was very vulnerable. She only had one son. She was very poor. She was suffering the effects of famine. And yet when Elijah meets her, she's gathering sticks and he calls to her and he asks for water. And what's more, he commands her to bring him. The bread that's in her hand and as he does she's like at her lowest point she goes on to tell elijah they've got nothing left in the house she was just gathering the sticks so that they could eat what they had left and then die and yet elijah looks at this old woman with nothing left and says feed me which would have been hard for anyone but doubly hard for her because she was a gentile who wasn't living in israel And even if she knew Elijah was a prophet, she would have looked at Elijah and thought, you don't have any power here. That's how people thought in those days. They thought each nation had its own God, and those gods were limited to work in that nation. And so from a human perspective, she had no reason to trust that Elijah could do anything for her. And yet, you know what? She takes him at his word. She puts her faith in God's ability to provide, and he does. God responds to her faith by giving her a jar of flour and oil that never runs out, no matter how much she uses. And you know, if that story is not quite enough to get his point across, Jesus tells another story about another Gentile, this time a, a man named Naaman, verse 27, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. And the point of this story is pretty much the same as the point of the one before. Only Naaman is different than the widow in terms of social class and status. He's the commander-in-chief of the Syrian army and a good friend of the king. He had it all until he was struck with leprosy, which made him desperate enough, you know the story, to listen to one of his wife's maids, who was an Israelite that he had actually kidnapped, and told him about the prophet Elisha. So he goes to the king of Israel, Naaman, with all sorts of money and gifts and a request, but this king is so wicked that he doesn't even think of Elisha, he's just afraid because he knows he can't do it. But Elisha hears about it and tells the king, send Naaman to me, and Naaman has come a long way, so he goes, but when he gets to Elisha's house, Elisha doesn't even come down the stairs. If they had stairs, he doesn't even come out, which would have been pretty rude in that day. It was a day that valued hospitality. Instead, he sends one of his servants, and he tells Naaman to go wash himself seven times in the Jordan, which Naaman doesn't like, actually, But just as he's about to storm off in a rage and go back home, his servants come to the rescue, calling him to trust in the word of the prophet. And he does, and he goes and he dips himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and he's healed. And what Jesus is saying to the Jewish people back then in Nazareth was that God was coming to provide salvation through him. He was going to fulfill the Old Testament promises. And if they wanted to experience the salvation that he as the Messiah was coming to bring, they needed to stop making excuses and just assuming they were right with God and humble themselves and see themselves as needy and turn to him and take him at his word, submit to him and accept him as the fulfillment of the scriptures, just like these Gentiles did in the Old Testament. He's using these Gentiles as an illustration of faith. And what an illustration of faith, because, you know, when Elijah came to that widow, she could have come up with all kinds of excuses not to believe. Doesn't this guy know that his God only works back in Israel? We're in Sidon now. I would help him. I would believe if it didn't mean giving up my last piece of bread. But she doesn't offer up any excuses. She just believes and obeys. And Naaman, too, had some obstacles. Leaving Damascus, as important as he was, must have looked funny for him to go to Israel for help and humbling himself there in front of the servants, even when Elisha doesn't show him any respect, he could have had excuses because God was doing things differently than he expected. But he doesn't give in to his excuses. No, he pushes past and he believes and he obeys. And what Jesus is saying, I think, and and once we get to the Book of Acts, we know this is what he's saying, is that the salvation he came to provide wasn't just something the Jewish people there in Nazareth could assume they were going to experience because of their nationality or Jewish heritage, if they weren't willing to come to him in faith for salvation, they weren't going to experience the blessings of salvation, which for the people in Nazareth that day was a warning because Jesus was God's son and God was using salvation, Jesus to provide salvation for real sinners. And if Israel rejects Jesus, it's not a judgment on Jesus and what God's doing through Jesus. It's going to be a judgment on Israel. Israel. And so Jesus would do what Elijah and Elisha did. He would take this great good news and hope it promised from those who wouldn't believe it and bring it to those who would, which, in fact, we know he did as we read the sequel in the book of Acts. The church goes out anointed in the power of the Spirit to take the gospel to the Gentiles, which, of course, is good news For us, it's like this passage is an invitation. We can be saved. We can experience the end-time salvation God promises through Jesus. We can be part of that if we humble ourselves and submit to God's authority and trust in what God's doing through Jesus because those are the kind of people God's saving. Which, if you're here and you know you're a sinner, is exciting. And yet, for the people sitting there in Nazareth, That day was just too much to take. And so Luke tells us in verse 28, When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Which, you know, I think is a warning not just to Israel back then, but to us. Because the good news is that God sent Jesus to save sinners. The bad news is we don't like being told we're sinners. And I know it's thousands of years later, and lots of things have changed. We're not Israel. We're Gentiles, all that, all that. But you preach Jesus's message, and you'll find this one thing hasn't changed at all. Nice, good religious people don't mind you telling them some things they can do to be right with God or have a great life. We could even do that at this church and and probably get pretty excited. Ten tips, 15 ways. But when you show them their need of salvation, when you tell them they're completely dependent on God, when you point them exclusively to Jesus, when God claims authority over their lives through his word, and when you emphasize their only hope of salvation is faith in Jesus, that's when nice, good, religious people get mad. And they start coming up with excuses to reject Jesus, even crazy excuses that don't make sense. Or they repent. How about you? Have you been humbled before God? Have you really heard the gospel Jesus preached? Has there been a time in your life where you saw that you were someone who had nothing good to offer God? that you deserved his judgment, that you were enslaved to sin, that you were blind spiritually, and that this slavery to sin was destroying you spiritually? Has there been a time in your life where you saw very clearly that you had only one hope of forgiveness, one hope of being right with God, one hope of spiritual freedom, one hope of breaking loose of sin's abuse, and that was found outside of you, in Jesus, has there been a, a time in your life where you took all of your hopes, every single last hope, your hope for the future, your hope for eternal life, your hope for righteousness, you name it, and you placed that hope completely on Jesus? If so, rejoice. Rejoice. Because that takes a miracle, I'm telling you. That takes a miracle from God. Because left to ourselves, we would respond just the way these nice religious people did back in Nazareth they're not unusual they are us that's who we were and I don't want to be naive because maybe that's how some of you are as well and if you're here and your heart is hard to Jesus you won't humble yourself before him you're angry you know what you can rage all you want against Jesus but in the end Jesus wins Because what you think of Jesus doesn't change who Jesus is. He is the son of God. And this story is another proof of it, actually. Because you know what happened when his people rejected him and tried to kill him? Here, they couldn't, verse 30 says. Passing through their midst, Jesus went away. Because God had a plan to accomplish through Jesus. And you know what that proved? Satan already told us what it proved. Satan, back in verse 10 and 11, when he quoted Psalm 91, the Messiah would supernaturally be protected by God in order to accomplish God's plan. And so please don't make the same mistake these good religious people did thousands of years ago. Don't stare your your only hope in the face and get angry. Because to enjoy this hope, you have to admit you need him. You have to admit he is salvation. You have to admit... He is Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we come to this book with great hope because we know in this book you speak. This is not just a report about what happened many years ago. You are speaking through what you once spoke. And so, Lord, you are present with us, and you are calling sinners to yourself, and you are revealing the glory of Jesus. You're putting him on display. And so, Holy Spirit, don't let those who are proud, don't let those who are, who are unwilling to acknowledge their need run away. Lord, make them miserable in their sins so they can rejoice in the salvation that you have provided for sinners. And Lord, those of us who are saved, help us not to forget. Help us not to forget that you came not to call the righteous but sinners. Help us not to start thinking that somehow we are the source of salvation, Help us never to forget that we don't deserve this and that our only hope is Christ. And it's a real hope. It's a real hope because you are the fulfillment of the scripture. You are the one who will accomplish God's great salvation plan, Jesus. We praise you and we pray this in your name. Amen.